Welcome to the podcast of Amago Day Community, where we are convicted to help bring the whole gospel to the whole person, to the whole world. Join us in this Sunday service as we look to the scriptures, seeking to be transformed into the image of Christ. Well, good morning, Amago Day. How are you? Happy New Year. All right. So, so awake this morning. If you have a Bible, turn with me to Luke chapter 16. We are uh, starting a series today called Saving Justice. And for the last 15 years, justice has been kind of a big piece of our journey together. But, but more than kind of a, a strategy or whatnot, it's actually, it's actually the heartbeat of God. And so, as we have kind of ventured slowly, step by step, into this topic of justice, more and more what happens is you, 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 you wake up. You, you hear what God has to say, you see the people that God loves, and then you respond, or you don't respond. And for three weeks, we wanna take this issue of justice and look at what, what does a biblical justice look like? How are the people of God, how are the, how's the church supposed to embody and bear witness to, to this faith that we have? That, that people of all different ethnicities and backgrounds find themselves united in Jesus Christ. How do we live that out together? How do we walk this out? And our history tells us that we, we haven't done a very good job of it. As we look at the papers, as we, we hear about Mike Brown, as we see officers in New York assassinated, as we watch protests, we realize now, as much as ever, if not more than ever, the world needs to see what biblical justice really looks like. The church needs to bear witness to the love of Christ for all people. And not a love that just is expressed in words, but also in action and in deeds. There's all kinds of issues when it comes to injustice. I mean, the world is full of injustice, and so there's lots of issues that we could tackle, but for three weeks, we want to tackle the issue of race, which is one of, uh, among many issues, but it is a crucial and important issue for us today in our culture. It's part of our history, racial injustice. It, it, it's, it's time where the church can have an opportunity to stand in this place and no longer divide the sacred and the secular, no longer divide the physical from the spiritual, but to have Jesus' vision of shalom to bear witness to a kingdom that can break in on earth as it is in heaven. And that requires something of us, some transformation in us, some, uh, some movement in us towards repentance and towards Christ and towards each other. I think, I think for our journey together as a family, as a church family, 
as we've walked into justice, we always do it, you know, in these little steps, an issue of poverty, an issue here. But, but for most part, that injustice is safely at a distance from where I live my life. I wouldn't call them pet projects because they're of crucial importance to the heart of God, but they're also safely at a distance from my own experience, my own culpability, perhaps, where the issue of race moves very close to me, inside of me, part of my heritage, my family, my neighborhood, my community. And so as we go through this series for three weeks, it really is an invitation, an invitation for us to wake up, to, to wake up and to hear God and to see as God sees. And as we do that, we're gonna look at Dr. Martin Luther King, some of his work, his speeches, his life's work. And one sermon that he wrote on how do we stay awake in the midst of a revolution, he wrote this sermon to a, a group of pastors and leaders, and it had three points to it. The first point was that the world is our neighborhood, and we belong to one another. That's an idea that's anchored in biblical truth, that we share this image of God that we're created in that in Christ we are no longer divided by what separates us, but we are united as brothers and sisters in one family. His second point, based on the first, was that if this is true, then we must eradicate racial injustice, and we must eradicate global poverty. And his third one was we must put an end to war. That was one that, that perhaps got him even more marginalized because he spoke this during the Vietnam War. He spoke out against the war and financially and otherwise. In fact, he's asked, when you took that stance, weren't you worried about the fact that financially your organizations no longer get supported? And he said, I don't vote with the budget. I speak from my conscience. We need to look at this man's life. We need to look at it to see what courage looks like. We need to look at it to allow it to speak back into our story. Where was the white church during his time? But we also need to hear him today. In this particular moment, where are we? We live in... Uh, a city that is known for being cool and liberal and, you know, uh, artsy and creative. But what we fail to realize that much of the coolness and the hipness is built upon the backs of people who can not afford to be cool or hip, who continually get pushed to the margins, gentrified out of their neighborhoods, out into southeast where we're planning on planting a congregation. Recently, I was speaking with somebody where their, their zoning is trying to be changed in deep southeast to make it even, to push the poverty even further out. 
And so we can no longer trust in systems. We can no longer trust in sort of, well, well, someone else will take care of it. The government will take care of it. The city will take care of it. Time will take care of it. The church has an opportunity to be a voice and a witness for Christ right now. But we will miss it if we aren't awake to hear what God says, to see what God wants us to see, and to respond creatively, imaginally, but boldly to the issues in our community today. All of these three points were rooted in the idea that before God, we belong to one another. It's true. In Christ, you belong to the people in this room. But everything about our culture and even our own hearts are all about defining our separation from each other, right? Whether it's our houses, our fences, our finances, our styles, our attitudes, our race, our money, our status, whatever it is, we want to separate ourselves from each other. Belonging to each other, that feels, that doesn't feel good. Maybe that's not our first reaction because we see every other person as a liability to our freedom, our autonomy. But aren't you glad God didn't see you that way? He didn't look down and go, Rick, you are a liability to the Trinity, which is true. I am, right? I'm a complete liability. And so are you. And the word became flesh and moved into your neighborhood and spoke the love of God to you in the language of your own humanity and died on the cross for you in the flesh of your own sinfulness and conquered death so you could become a new creation, so you could bear witness to a new kingdom, so you could participate in a revolution that another world is possible. And it breaks in not through uh, social movements per se, but in Christ and his people. Well, one of the texts that Martin Luther King used in this sermon was Luke chapter 16. And he used this text to, to call this, to call us to, to awaken, to wake up, to hear God, and to see. And the story is the story of the rich man and Lazarus that Jesus teaches. And so I'll read it and you can listen. He says this, he says, there was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. And at his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. 
The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. And the rich man also died and he was buried in Hades where he was in torment. And he looked up and he saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things, but now he's comforted here and you're in agony. And besides all this, between us and your, you, a great chasm has been set in place. So that those who wanna go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. And so he answered, then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so they will not also come to this place of torment. And Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. And he said, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. When Martin Luther King was speaking about this, he, he broke down sort of the idea that Lazarus goes to heaven because he's poor and the rich man goes to hell because he's rich. He says, that wasn't the issue. Here's what he says. Now, Abraham was a very rich man. If you go back to the Old Testament, you see that he was the richest man of his day. So it was not a rich man in hell talking to a poor man in heaven. It was a little millionaire in hell talking to a multimillionaire in heaven. And he didn't go to hell because he was rich. He didn't realize that his wealth was his opportunity. It was his opportunity to bridge the gulf that separated him from his brother Lazarus. He went to hell because he was passed by Lazarus every day and he never really saw him. He went to hell because he allowed his brother to become invisible. He went to hell because he maximized the minimum and minimized the maximum. Indeed, he went to hell because he sought to be a conscientious objector to the war against poverty. And this can happen to America, the richest nation in the world, and nothing's wrong with that. This is America's opportunity to help bridge the gulf between the have and the have-nots. The question is whether America will do it. There's nothing new about poverty, but what is new is that now we have the techniques and the resources to get rid of poverty. The real question is whether we have the will. The issue is not wealth as better than poverty or poverty better than wealth. The issue is being awake. Awake to hearing God and what God's vision for the world is, for every person in the world. And seeing, seeing what God sees. And the man was not awake. He didn't hear God and he didn't see Lazarus. The man was probably moderate in his beliefs, just, just enough to kind of pay attention, just enough charity, just enough spirituality, just enough to make sure that his world stayed comfortable. And it is in this moderation, this don't take it too far, that we get lulled to sleep. 
that we go deaf to God and blind to each other. Because we're so safe, we're so secure, we're so focused on what's mine that I don't even see you to wonder about what's yours. And so he's lulled to sleep and then he's lulled into hell. And it's there with all that security stripped away that he finally sees my brother in heaven. What does it mean for us to be awake in our moment? What does it mean to hear God and to see? It's interesting that Abraham's answer to the rich man in hell is they have Moses and the prophets. What's he saying there? What's he, what he's saying is that God's vision for how this man was supposed to treat Lazarus has been rooted and anchored in our story through the whole of the Old Testament. That from the beginning, the Torah, the books of Moses, to the prophets, the whole of the Old Testament clearly identifies what God has been saying to us what his heart is for the marginalized, the poor, the oppressed. Here's what he says in Deuteronomy. Because in, in Deuteronomy, there was, there was, a, there was a, a, a Levitical law. There was a, a, a year of jubilee every seventh year when everyone's debts would be cleared. And if people owed you money, you, you just said it's good. Can you imagine that in America? It's just like every seventh year we all went bankrupt. It's bad. But in God's economy, it was that no one is going to get themselves so buried that they would be oppressed, that they'd be owned, that they would be enslaved. He says, the seventh year, the year of canceling debts is near, so don't harbor this wicked thought and don't show ill will toward the needy among your fellow Israelites and give them nothing. They may then appeal to the Lord against you and you'll be found guilty of sin. Give generously to them. Do so without a grudging heart. Then because of this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and everything you put your hand to. There will always be poor people in the land. Therefore, I command you to be open-handed towards your fellow Israelites who are poor and needy in your land. Proverbs 14, 31. Whoever oppresses the poor shows contempt for their maker. But whoever is kind to the needy honors God. In the book of Isaiah, and this goes right through all the prophets, he's speaking to them about their gathering and their assembly, and he says, stop bringing me your meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moon, Sabbath, I can't bear your worthless assemblies. Imagine if, if that's what God said about your worship today. How was the worship service? I thought it was pretty good. What'd you think? I hate it. I can't stand it. And you're like, wow, don't invite him back to church. <laughs> They've become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. <laughs> it's like, hey, that last song, that was a burden to God, just so you know. Your voice cracked a little bit. 
Um, what's he saying, though? What is he saying? Here are people who put a lot of effort into worship. There's a lot of practices and, and uh, go, a lot of motions to go through. They got up early. They went to church. I mean, it, it wasn't just a small thing. Why would God be so antagonistic about our worship? Here's what he says. Wash and make yourself clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. When Abraham says to Lazarus, your family has Moses and the prophets. If they won't listen to, to them, then a man from the dead, rising from the dead, that's not gonna make any difference. Why? Because they're asleep. They're already asleep. They can't hear and therefore they won't see and they won't act. How convicting is it that we who hold these sacred scriptures, who are privileged to come and listen to the words of God through the Bible, don't hear them? We look at these passages like Jesus is speaking here in Luke 16, and we're like, well, that's sort of, you know, that imagery, it takes it a little too far, and it was a parable, and it was a, that's fine, but he is saying something to us that's massively important. He seems to be indicating that the way you and I listen to God and treat each other actually has an eternal consequence to it. It seems that Jesus takes it pretty seriously. But do we? And one of the things that I think we should be the most afraid of is being a church that in our cultural moment is asleep. That we either justify why we're asleep, we create, a, we create a, a dialogue in our own head about why Mike Brown was shot. We, 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 we land on some little detail and try to write the whole thing off. We, we just fall asleep to what God actually says because frankly, it's really inconvenient. It, 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 it costs me something and I'm, I don't wanna pay that price. My friend Mark Strong is an African-American pastor here in town. He was telling me the story of when he tried to buy a house in the 90s in North Portland. And it was like a $60,000 house. And he got denied and denied and denied and denied. He's a pastor. And we don't realize, but if you go back into the 60s, the Fair Housing Administration like, can tell you that, that there is 
demographically plotted plans to keeping minorities out of neighborhoods, to not letting them get loans. Like it's stuff that just would blow your mind if, if, it was, if you knew about it. And he found out later on that out of 100 loans that had been given in that neighborhood, two went to African Americans, one to Hispanic, and the rest to white people. Does that sound fair? Does that seem right? Martin Luther King said that slavery is the black man's burden and the white man's shame. And that's true. And there's nothing that you and I can do to make that go away. So don't even try to start start figuring out how you're gonna write it off. Just sit in it and the tension of it and how uncomfortable that is. It should break our hearts. One of Dr. King's greatest, I think, disappointments was the white church. Because in his day, he fought these two kind of forces. There was... In the black community, there was the Nation of Islam with Elijah Muhammad, and they, they endorsed violent action. And then you had the oppression of, of the white people and demanding segregation, like just defending segregation. And then you had his group that was trying to fight for nonviolence, and I think more than likely in his heart, he was thinking, well, but the white church will stand with us. The white church understands the heart of God. They understand what biblical justice is. They would say, but, but the white church didn't, for the most part, stand with them. Particularly conservative, theologically conservative churches didn't stand with them. And he writes this letter from Birmingham prison about the church. He says, there was a time when the church was very powerful. It was during that period that the early Christians rejoiced when they were deemed worthy to suffer for what they believed. In those days, the church was not merely a thermometer that recorded the ideas and principles of popular opinion. It was a thermostat that transformed the mores, the norms of society. You need to hear that again. In those days, the church was not merely a thermometer that recorded the ideas and principles of popular opinion. Man, is that convicting to us? Like when you're on Facebook, what is that? It's a thermometer. Well, here's what I think about this. Well, here's what I think about this. It's just all we do is record, like, uh, what's popular opinion? He said, no, the church in that day was a thermostat. They were the ones that controlled the temperature. They transformed the norms of society. Wherever the early Christians entered a town, the power structure got disturbed and immediately sought to convict them for being disturbers of the peace and outside agitators. Those are the, that's the language that Dr. King was being imprisoned for. 
But they went on with the conviction that they were a colony of heaven and had to obey God rather than man. They were small in number but big in commitment, and they were too God-intoxicated to be astronomically intimidated. They brought an end to such ancient evils as infanticide and gladiatorial contest, but things are different now. The contemporary church is so often a weak ineffectual voice with an uncertain sound. It is so often the arch supporter of the status quo, far from being disturbed by the presence of the church. The power structure of the average community is consoled by the church's often vocal sanction of things as they are. But the judgment of God is upon the church as never before. If the church today does not recapture the sacrificial spirit of the early church, it'll lose its authentic ring and forfeit the loyalty of millions and be dismissed as an irrelevant social club with no meaning for the 20th century. And I meet young people every day whose disappointment with the church has risen to outright disgust. And I hope the church as a whole will meet the challenge of this decisive hour. Man, it's convicting. Because here we are, decades later, and I think the church is still that sort of ineffectual voice with, a, with kind of a, we don't really know what we're saying. We don't really know what we're standing for. We want to be safe, we want to be moderate, we want to be liked. We don't want to take it too far, we don't want to be extremists. Biblical justice preached by prophets who were suffered, persecuted for what they said, it still needs to be spoken with a prophetic edge by people who believe that there is nothing they can take from you because you have Christ and in Christ you have everything. But we are so far. We don't wanna suffer an uncomfortable conversation, right? We don't wanna sit across the table, uh, black, white, Latino, whatever, and just say, here's my question, here's, here's what I think, here's how I feel. We just wanna be like, oh no, I've never had a negative thought about anybody, but those people did, my great grandpa did. It's not true, it's not true. So let's just, let's just say there's grace here to be honest and to talk and to stumble. Eric Knox and I are in these conversations and they get heated and he's like, you're an ignorant white man. I'm like, you're an angry black guy. And we just go back and forth that way. But, but we have to have the freedom in those conversations to go, I'm tired of that argument. Or I'm tired of hearing about your, your feeling white guilt. Because it doesn't change anything for me. Because we can be like, I feel guilty. Are we good? Like, I feel guilty. It doesn't fix it. And so there's this uncomfortable tension. We can't say time will fix it, because it hasn't. There is no quick fix. 
which we want. I mean, anytime there is burden and shame, you go, how do I get rid of this shame and how do I get rid of this burden? And maybe we can sort of just exchange them or how do I? You can't. Like there is not gonna be a black guy and a white guy sitting in a room or women and come away going, hey, we, we had an hour coffee. We figured this out. And they're definitely, if that's not the case, there's not gonna be three white dudes in a room who figure it out. But when you see the violence in our streets, when you hear the arguments, the protests, you realize the world needs the church to wake up because the world needs Jesus. One of the most impressive things to me about Dr. King and and his movement was the practice of nonviolence. Again, he was between these two tensions. One was uh, a, a nationalism that was saying, hey, we should take up violence against the white man. And then he was up against violent oppression. And, and it really was the black church that gave him sort of the power and the conviction of Jesus' words to say, we are gonna do this in love and not violence. Now, I don't know about you, but I, I, I don't think I could have done that. I don't think I could have sat and watched, watched my mother be arrested, or my daughter, my sister, my wife, a dog being sicked on my son because I was sitting at a counter that said whites only. I don't think I could have turn the other cheek. I mean, I was late for church today, not you late, me late. There's a difference, <laughs> right? You late is like, hey, there's a half a song left. I'm gonna grab some bread and wine, and church was great. <laughs> it's all the church I wanted, particularly on a day like this. But I'm driving, and I'm driving fast, and this guy's in front of me, and I'm like, you know, it's like, dude, what's wrong with this idiot? And, what's, and everybody on the road has become lower than me, lesser than me, right? Just evil, dumb, ignorant people who won't let me go 90 miles an hour down the road because I'm late to church. <laughs> Preach about justice. And then I watch, like you watch 42, which is the story of Jackie Robinson breaking the color barrier, and there's that one scene Man, where there's this the Cincinnati manager and Jackie Robinson's at bat and he's calling him the N-word over and over and over. Nigga, nigga, nigga. Hey, boy, hey, boy. And thousands of white people in the stands, on the field, nobody does nothing. And everything in me is like, man, I would just want to take a bat to that guy's head. But if I was sitting in the stands, would I? Then you see a little kid start to yell it in the stands. How in the world did he live this, this peaceable nonviolence? Here's what he says. Well, I'm gonna save that. 
It was the heartbeat of Jesus to, to be able to say, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. To be able to take the blows. There is a witness that he bore, that the people bore in their suffering that still speaks today, right? That still speaks today. They could have fought back, they could have punched and kicked and created riots, but what they did was they, they just stood their ground, they peacefully and nonviolently protested and spoke up on behalf of God's vision of justice. And because they were able to do that under the power of peace and not violence, it still rings so true to us and the oppression rings so wrong. And so for Imago, what is it for us? What is it for us? We have taken steps in the areas of justice, but, but this is something bigger. This is something that's going to require us to, to know one another, to, to hear, to listen. I think of James 1 as perhaps the most profound first step. It says this, my dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Because human anger does not produce the righteous life that God so desires. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. What does that look like for you to listen? And some of us should be quicker to listen than others. Some of us should listen a lot longer than others. Some of us need to listen empathetically to a story that you can try to identify with, but you really can't. To hear God, to see your brother and sister, to listen, to be slow to speak, to keep your opinions shut down for a little while, to not... To, to look more at the resistance that wants to fight back and speak back and go, what is that in me that wants to deny this person's story? Because that's ugly. I need to repent of that. To let the anger that's there, the discontentment that's there be brought before God so that he can heal it. To be able to hear God and to see each other. Man, if we can do that, if we can begin to take those steps where we act for justice, where we see Lazarus, where we look at our privilege, where we look at our resources, where we look at our lives as opportunity to display God's vision of shalom, that's how the revolution continues. That's how we stay awake during the revolution. But it starts with you. It starts with me. Man, I've spent so many years not listening. 
being comfortable in my ignorance because it seems too messy, too entangled, too many opinions. And I'm grateful to Eric Knox and Corey Murphy and to those of you in this community that have patiently sat with me, walked with me, listened to me. But, but man, it is time, not just for me, but for each one of us, to not let our cultural moment pass. To not have Dr. King write us this letter. But say, where were you? Where were you? Be slow to speak, quick to listen, and slow to become angry. I'm going to close with this. These are his words, talking about the frustrations and the nonviolence and the root of his action. And I want you to just listen to him. Let him convict you. Let him um, disrupt you as you come to the table this morning. It says, the Negro has many pent-up resentments and latent frustrations, and he must release them. So let him march. Let him make prayer pilgrimage to the city hall. Let him go on freedom rides and try to understand why he must do so. If his repressed emotions are not released in nonviolent ways, they will seek expression through violence. This is not a threat, but a fact of history. So I have not said to my people, get rid of your discontent. Rather, I have tried to say that this normal and healthy discontent can be channeled into the creative outlet of nonviolent direct action. And now this approach is being termed extremist. But though I was initially disappointed at being categorized as an extremist, as I continued to think about the matter, I gradually gained a measure of satisfaction from the label. Was not Jesus an extremist for love? Love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Was not Amos an extremist for justice? Let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Was not Paul an extremist for the gospel? I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. Was Martin Luther an extremist? Here I stand and I can do, not do otherwise, so help me God. And John Bunyan, I will stay in jail to the end of my days before I make a butchery of my conscience. And Abraham Lincoln, this nation cannot survive half slave, half free. And Thomas Jefferson, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. So the question is not whether we will be extremists, but what kind of extremists will we be? Will we be extremists for hate or for love? Will we be extremists for the preservation of injustice or the extension of justice? In that dramatic scene on Calvary's Hill, three men were crucified. We must never forget that all three were crucified for the same crime, the crime of extremism. Two were extremists for immorality. The other, Jesus Christ, was an extremist for love, truth, and goodness. Perhaps the South, the nation, and the world are in dire need of creative extremists. Let's pray.
Lord, as we come to this table, a table that you've prepared for us in the language of our own need, our own poverty, I pray, God, that we would come as people who are awake and that we would hear from you, that we would bring to you our apathy and our anger, our selfishness, our security, our safety, our moderation. We would bring to you our quickness to defend our burden, our shame. We would bring ourselves to you and that you would heal and transform us, God, so that we would be awake. And in this moment of our culture, that you would give us the privilege of bearing witness to your vision for justice. And to see each person as our brother and sister. To bestow on them the value, the dignity, the equity that they deserve in our own eyes, God. May we be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. But may we act with the courage and the boldness of your spirit. We pray in Christ's name, amen. We pray that God will use this message to strengthen your faith and draw you into a deeper relationship with himself. If you're interested in hearing other sermons or want more information about the church, please visit our website at www.amargodaycommunity.com Thanks a lot for listening.